Welcome to another episode of Tell Me Another, a podcast dedicated to telling great stories from the past. Stories of genius and folly, compassion and cruelty. Instead of sitting around a campfire telling stories of our ancestors, we're coming to you from the History Department of the U.S. Naval Academy, located in Annapolis, Maryland. We're coming with stories to tell, and we hope you listen. With us in the studio today are Dr. Lorraine Patterson, Professor Ernie Tucker, and Associate Professor Thomas Burgess, who will be relating the second half of the marvelous story of a Zanzibari revolutionary and the history of his islands. In our previous episode, we heard the remarkable tale of Ali Sultanisa, who rose from relative obscurity in the streets of Zanzibar town to travel the world and meet many of the most famous and powerful men of his generation, people like Fidel Castro, Khrushchev, and Ho Chi Minh. We heard about his conversion to Marxism and support for violent revolution in Zanzibar, even when that violence targeted thousands of his own Arab kinsmen and even claimed the lives of members of his own family. And we also heard how he served the revolutionary regime by confiscating Arab and Asian homes and by ordering people to be flogged in the streets. And how he also worked to bring literacy and education to his islands by building schools in the villages. After eight years as a minister, Issa had come to believe the revolution had gone radically wrong. Yet he felt he could do or say nothing without risking his own life and his family's fortune. So he remained silent during the years of hardship and worsening conditions. He enjoyed his beach house with his English wife, Maria, while also keeping a separate apartment in town for his many mistresses. Finally, in early 1972, he was dismissed from his ministerial post, And then in April of the same year, he was drinking coffee with a friend when he heard shots ring out. As he walked home, he heard the news that President Karumi had been shot. Late that very night, he was arrested and accused of involvement in Karumi's assassination. His detention was part of a general roundup of hundreds of former members of the UMA party, all of whom were accused of complicity in the plot to kill Karumi and overthrow the government. He was packed like a sardine into a tiny mosquito-fested cell with 12 other men all sharing the same hole in the ground as a toilet with only cardboard to sleep on at night. When he was interrogated, he denied any knowledge of the conspiracy, yet he was tortured anyway. For three days, they beat him into unconsciousness. Still, he refused to say anything. While in prison, his cellmates told him what happened. His friends in the Uma party had indeed conspired to seize power and end the suffering in Zanzibar, They wanted to capture Karume and force him at gunpoint to announce over the radio that he was resigning from power. But when the plot was discovered, the conspirators knew they would all die if Karume lived. So a team of three volunteered to go to ASP headquarters and gun down the president. The man who pulled the trigger was an army officer whose own father had been executed by the regime a few years before. He, along with Karume, died in a hail of bullets. With Issa in prison, His wife, Maria, was left penniless as well as five months pregnant with her fourth child. She managed to escape the country and return to the UK with her children. Issa was not so lucky. Though he survived torture, he and other detainees were eventually put on trial and in front of the TV cameras sentenced to death. Eventually, after a second appeal, his sentence was reduced to 30 years. Issa spent the first two years in total isolation. But then afterwards, he was able to mix with other prisoners, do odd jobs around the prison, and reminisce about better days. Eventually, he and some other prisoners went on a hunger strike, demanding mosquito nets and better food than just boiled cassava every day. 
This led to a few small improvements, but life was still very hard and monotonous. He dropped to less than 100 pounds and, and because of ulcers, started to bleed from his rectum. He studied the Quran, reading several translations. After many years as an atheist Marxist, he became a believer and embraced the Muslim faith of his ancestors. He felt there was a divine plan at work. God was punishing him for his earlier misdeeds, yet sparing his life because he was never corrupt. As a minister, he'd never stolen government money. He interpreted imprisonment as God's way of compelling him to return to the fold. Can you talk about sort of, give us some background on what sparked Issa's initial disillusionment with the revolution? He clearly was passionate at one point and deeply involved and and turned away from it. I don't know if it was gradual or it was sudden or just, just take us through that a little bit. Yeah, that's a great question. He did enter the revolution with very high hopes. He was ecstatic, like we said, um, but gradually became disillusioned when the President Karume became more autocratic and dictatorial and began to execute uh, his fellow ministers and made one decision after another that seemed to just destroy the economic life of the islands and um, by putting people on rations and so forth and by forcing labor from thousands of people who are already hungry, in some cases starving. And life became very hard for the ordinary islander. And he himself felt that he wasn't exempt, that he couldn't speak his mind, that there was no freedom, that he was always worried that someone would, re would report him for some, some misdoing on his part, some sort of sabotage. And so, yeah, he lived in fear like everybody else and uh, was told me he was lucky to survive. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, he also, I should say, had a very strong sort of blueprint, an idea in his mind of, of what a revolution ought to entail. And this, what happened in Zanzibar departed dramatically from that blueprint. Um, there's a lot I could say about this fascinating turn of events in um, Nisa's life, but I want to focus on the impact of his actions on the woman in his life. Given that he had numerous infidelities and abandoned partners in a serial manner, so how did he justify these sorts of actions to himself, do you think? Was this just part of living a pure revolutionary life? Or is this just the behavior of an entitled man of his time? Yeah, there's really no defense for what he did and how he treated women. He exhibited a, an incredible degree of callousness uh, towards his various wives or ex-wives and partners along the way. Um, and he took pride, actually, in how many women he had been with in his whole life. And that was very much a part of his personality. He, and I think that goes back to his early school days. And he saw nothing wrong with men sleeping around in a rather random, promiscuous way, uh, even in some cases with other men's wives. So in that sense, he was very much unique or a rebel from conventional Muslim standards of good behavior. Um, I mean, he would always say, well, I'm in a Muslim territory, so we're allowed to have four wives and to be relatively free, not like you people. And he would also say that, well, if you, as long as you do things discreetly, God will eventually forgive you in the end. If you do things publicly, make a spectacle of yourself, then that's much harder for God to forgive. So he did have a certain moral compass, but not maybe one that 
people ordinarily in the West would embrace. After nearly seven years in prison, Issa was released in December 1978. He was now 46 years old and just skin and bones. With the help of Amnesty International, he was able to travel to the UK to be with his wife and four of his children, one of whom he'd never seen before. After several months, he regained his former weight and returned to Zanzibar, determined to start over. Since it was impossible now to return to politics, Issa went into petty trade. He bought things in his trips to the UK and sold them in Zanzibar for a hefty profit. Still claiming to be a Marxist, he justified this by saying he was not exploiting anyone. Now divorced from Maria, he hosted parties in his beautiful beach house and managed to have several girlfriends all at the same time. His favorite was a younger woman named Eshe, whom he first saw in the courtroom audience as a death sentence hung over him. There in the courtroom, he was struck by her beauty and vowed to have her one day. They married in 1982, but it didn't last very long. Convinced Zanzibar needed to abandon the authoritarian policies that had been in place since 1964, and that it was time for Zanzibaris to be allowed to vote in real elections, Issa printed up and distributed leaflets demanding the president's resignation and elections. He wanted an end to force and fear. He wanted pragmatism. Eventually, though, he was arrested and thrown in prison without trial. He stayed inside for a year. Then, upon his release, he discovered Eshe had aborted their child and run away to Indonesia to be with her former boyfriend from Denmark. Furious, Issa sent her papers of divorce. But when Eshe returned to Zanzibar in 1984, he married her for the second time and took her on a honeymoon to Mombasa, Kenya. There in the Hilton Hotel, he threatened her, saying, If you run away again, this time I'll kill you. I have a gun in my briefcase, and the Russians taught me how to strangle people without letting them make a sound. But he lied just to frighten her. He never had the training, and he didn't have a gun in his briefcase. Finally, in that same year, Zanzibar had a new president, now determined to end the isolationist socialist policies that had been in place for 20 years. The new president liberalized the economy and created new opportunities for former Marxists like Issa. Through his old connections in government, Issa obtained 30 acres of prime land on the waterfront north of Zanzibar town. He didn't pay a penny for the transaction, yet farmers who lived there now had to go because Issa wanted their land to build a hotel. He went into partnership with Italian investors, but they reached a point during construction when they ran out of cash. So he made a trip to the U.S. in search of further funding. There he met Frank Carlucci, whom he'd befriended in the 1960s, and he was now President Reagan's Secretary of Defense. Carlucci declined to invest in Issa's hotel project, yet wrote him an encouraging note saying, your capitalist success exceeds all my expectations. Finally, with further foreign funding, the hotel was completed in 1990, Zanzibar's first beach resort hotel. Now there are over 100 such hotels in Zanzibar, but Issa's was the first and it provided him a comfortable and relaxing retirement. So much so that he was free to drink more than ever before, 15 to 20 beers a day. But after a New Year's bash in which he polished off several bottles of champagne, he vowed to quit drinking cold turkey. He kept his vow, and as a reward in 1995, the president of Zanzibar offered to send him at state expense on a pilgrimage to Mecca. 
This made Issa, the former playboy and atheist, the talk of the town. No one could believe this new twist in his life story. Before leaving, Issa felt compelled to ask forgiveness from people he had wronged in the past. Then he was on a plane for Saudi Arabia, where he joined four million other pilgrims in the rituals of the Hajj. He circumambulated the Kaaba seven times, then shaved his head, removed his garments, and washed in Zanzam water. He had done his duty as a good Muslim. The next year saw Issa in Cuba on a pilgrimage of an entirely different kind. He had fallen in love with Cuba back in the early 60s and was tempted even to stay there and forget about the political struggle back in Zanzibar. He deeply admired the Cuban Revolution and had fond memories of Fidel and Raul Castro. Surrounded at the festival by some of his old comrades, Issa started drinking again and going to nightclubs. A Cuban television crew interviewed him about his memories of Che Guevara, but he started to cry and continued so long they had to stop filming. Clearly, a part of him was still in love with the idea of revolution and the heroic figures that made them happen. What, what was the real impact, do you think, of his conversion to Islam? I mean, we have him going on the Hajj, but we have him going for the 10 to 15 beers at a party, and, and there's just, you know, the question that arises pretty obviously is, was the conversion genuine? And, you know, maybe to explore that a little bit would be helpful. Sure. Yeah, well, he would say it was genuine in the sense that he now believed in God when before he wasn't sure or even denied his existence in some cases. So, and for him, that's really what is important. Uh, that and his seeming incorruptibility in the sense that he didn't actually ever take a bribe while a minister in, in uh, state service. So as far as he's concerned, these are the the things you have to do in life to be considered virtuous of some kind. And a good Muslim, he kind of doesn't worry about the other issues involved. Um, yeah, he did return to drinking after his Hajj, and he doesn't express a whole lot of regret for some other things he did in his life. So it's his own ethical system. Um, you opened the first of these two podcasts by mentioning how Ali Sultanisa had a life of contradictions. And this has been amply illustrated over these two episodes and many of the decisions he's made and the experiences that he's had. As you talk to him as his interlocutor, did you at times feel tempted to point out all the ways in which he had lived a contradictory life? Or how did it feel at times to have him go through all of these different spheres and aspects of life. I was blown away sometimes by his stories. They just seemed to cascade from him in vivid detail. And in some ways, it was a pleasure to interview him because he relived moments with vivid clarity, often even getting to his feet to reenact episodes from the past from 20, 30 years before. So he had a very um, graphic and real memory of, of past events and wanted to, to convey them to me and to anyone who read his story. Um, but yeah, there were times when I was appalled, like anyone might be uh, hearing some of these stories. But ultimately, my, my perspective was he is providing this 
extremely invaluable and unique account of the revolution in Zanzibar from within. And I had to just listen to him uh, and make him feel comfortable in saying more because he was saying things that happened about what happened in Zanzibar in the 60s that no one else was talking about. So I felt I, he was revealing things more and more as he developed more trust in me. And I should say that initially he wasn't very trust trusting of me. He denounced me as a capitalist many times, as an American imperialist. You know, for ideologically we were night and day in some respects, but gradually he began to call me his son and to develop a certain trust in me and would invoke the blessings of God upon my soul, et cetera. And so we had a, a certain close relationship towards the end. Um, so, yeah, I guess he would say that despite these contradictions, some of these contradictions are non-antagonistic. That was one of his pet phrases. There are contradictions that are antagonistic, some that are not. So we all have contradictions. The question is, are they antagonistic? And he would say there's really no major incompatibility between Islam and Marxism because if you just take out Marxist atheism and Islamic capitalism, they're more or less the same, which for some people might be a rather huge leap. Uh, but that was his perspective. So, Just wanted to explore what is the view in 2023 in Zanzibar about the reputation and legacy of Isa, how do people view him now after his passing and also after a considerable amount of time since the revolution and everything else, just sort of sort of a general view of him historically? Yeah, that's a great question, Ernie. I, I can say on one side, there are some people who have still very bitter memories of the revolution. Anyone who's associated with it, like Ali Sultan Isa, is condemned as a rule, basically. But at the book launch, an interesting thing happened where Ali Sultan Isa spoke to a crowd that was mostly critical of the revolution and just gradually won them over by saying, I may have made mistakes in the past. Please forgive me. None of us are perfect. Only God is perfect. So, you know, I forgive you. Please forgive me of my mistakes in the past. And he kind of won them over also with his message of unity, we Zanzibari should stand together as islanders and you know, defy anyone trying to swallow us like in some larger federation, et cetera. So he really played the crowd rather cleverly and, got, and won them over in a way that was kind of surprising because they could have easily been quite hostile because there are still memories. Like for example, when we traveled to Pemba together, this is where he ordered people to be flogged in the streets back in 1964. And there was a man who just sort of, he and I were, were chatting on the street and, and a man from that time period, much older man came and sat next to us and began to sing a song that apparently had been in circulation in Pemba ever since the 60s. All the lyrics are describing Ali Sultan ordering people to be flogged, basically. So very active in public memories. And that was one of the most notorious things that people remember about him. Um, but, you know, in the grand scheme of things, he was far less problematic, say, than other people in the revolutionary hierarchy. He really was relatively harmless compared to some other people we could mention. So there is that. One of the things that I found most fascinating, what you're talking about, is uh, Western power's perceptions that a federation of Tanganyika and Zanzibar would be very uh, useful from the point of view of controlling and containing Zanzibar. So uh, I'd love to hear a little more about that. 
Yeah, in one sense, that was a correct Western assumption in that Zanzibar didn't provoke revolutions across East and Central Africa, as was feared at, feared at, at the time. But then again, what happened after the Union took place was a lot of Zanzibari radicals were transferred to the Union government, and there they helped to radicalize that government by convincing Nereri, the president of Tanzania, to form close ties with Ch mainland China, uh, and in many ways orchestrated that whole relationship. And in the 1970s, uh, Tanzania was a huge recipient of Chinese aid. The Chinese built a massive railway connecting Dar es Salaam with Lusaka and Zanzibar Z in Zambia. And this was by far the largest foreign aid project that Chinese ever undertook during the entire Cold War. So close relationships. And Nereri did think that China was the model for Tanzania's development in many respects. So in some ways, there was influence, albeit in an unex unexpected direction. This has been a production of the History Department at the U.S. Naval Academy, located in Annapolis, Maryland. If you enjoy our programs, please let us know as we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at USNA History. And our email is historyproductions-group at usna.edu. For more information about the History Department at the Naval Academy, please visit usna.edu history.